So uh, uh, I, I've been trying to outflank this miserable weather with gratitude today. Here's what I come up with. I was thankful for the, the pitter-patter sound of the semi-frozen raindrops on my umbrella as I walked to church. I was thankful for the stark, if elegiac, beauty of the limbs, the branches, and the twigs laden with ice, prematurely trying to bud. And I was thankful, most of all today, that I didn't break my neck on the way to church. So, okay, that's what you got to do. Outflank your troubles with gratitude. Okay, we're in the second in a twice a month. It doesn't work a lot of the time, but it's worth the effort. Okay, second in a twice a month uh, series uh, that will go through June uh, called the 12 Steps for Anyone. Uh, today we have steps one to three, how to say more with less about God. Before I get into it, though, I have this book up here that reminds me that Gretchen and I are starting a nerds-only um, book group after church at Morgan and York, about 15-20 minutes after the end of church. I like to lead uh, small groups that I myself enjoy going to. I find otherwise I don't tend to, they don't tend to last for me. So I like reading science and I like reading it with others so I can understand it. And Gretchen has like a, she's like a biologist, uh, evolutionary biologist. This book is Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Our Worst by Robert Sapolsky. And I can see so many of you nodding your heads with interest and anticipation. And if you are you are one of those people right over there, Morgan and York, 15 to 20 minutes after the end of our service. Robert Sapolsky will meet monthly. All right, preliminary remarks on uh, steps one to three. So I'm, I'm speaking as an admirer of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in this series and uh, the spiritual uh, wisdom embedded in the 12 steps. Um, these, you know, were developed with a laser focus on helping alcoholics who wanted to gain sobriety to do so. And then soon, you know, started in like 1935, you know, within, within a couple of decades, it was really spreading to um, gaining sobriety and other addictive realms. Um, I'm also motivated, I must admit, by a lifelong or nearly a lifelong uh, ad admiration of the Jesus of the Gospels. Um, who gained a reputation by way of the guilt by association law as a glutton and a drunkard. So Jesus was known as a drunkard uh, throughout his life. And I, th I think he actually had a particular fondness and uh, like a non-condescending compassion for people who drank too much. And I think he probably shows up at a lot of AA meetings. Uh, anonymously, of course, this is only appropriately. So... Also, by way of preliminary remark, it's su super important for us to remember that the 12 steps uh, only actually have their power within a context. And the context is this fellowship of recovering people, including sponsors, people who've been down the road a little bit further and can serve as kind of one-on-one support to people who want it. Um, so it's a one-on-one -on -one, uh, one -on -one type of spirituality. It's a one step at a time spirituality and it's in the company of others spirituality so you know whenever you're facing like a really you know something's got you beat and you the normal efforts to deal with it th those three things are always worth kind of scanning on your own horizon you know like okay instead of like putting all your intention into like what's the ultimate solution to my problem often the most important thing is like what's my next step 
could just find like what's a next step. Go, go look up something. Go find some help from somebody. So one step at a time is key when you're when you're hurting. Uh, look for some company. Look, look for others who might be of some support to you, or or work your support net network more, such as it is, and then some kind of one-on-one -on -one help is often helpful. So that's like that's like a basic triage when life has got you down. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. We're using the Alcoholics Anonymous version of the 12 steps here for this series. So, you know, usually when we're faced with something um, that we can't beat through our normal efforts, we very much get used to a voice in our head, a kind of a nagging voice that's there seems like all the time. It's like the finger wagging voice. It's the you need, you should voice. Uh, it, usually it's our own voice. Sometimes it's internalized voice of others. Sometimes we hear this voice in well-meaning others who try to help us and are distressed by what we're going through. Um, that tone, that mood, that voice is completely absent in the 12 steps. You cannot find that voice in the 12 steps. It's, it's one of the great marks of genius of the 12 steps. Beginning with step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Do you all remember in the 1950s when you were going to birthday parties in Northwest Detroit and they had cupcakes with sprinkles and there were Wonder Bread sandwiches? Or sometimes if things were bad, one of the mothers they would make, um, one mother made, uh, Tim London's mother, I hope she's not listening, made pizza in a pan with ketchup on top and hot dog slices and I'd heard we were having pizza and I was so disappointed and they would always have party favors and one of the party favors is this, this thing called a finger trap I think like in the 1950s you all remember that they were like um, they were like a, almost like a straw this is a, a newfangled one it's uh, it's plastic but the idea of the finger trap is you put you know you put your finger in both ends of the finger trap and then you want to get out of the finger trap because it's a trap, right? And so you pull out and ooh, it just worked. Um, usually, usually, oh yeah, it tightens up and you can't do it as you pull up because of the way the weave is going. So you're like, hmm, okay, I'm on a finger trap. How long is this going to last? I don't imagine dying with this thing on. And then you push in, you do the counterintuitive mood, and then you get out of your finger trap. This is like, this is the finger trap approach. Uh, the first steps, one, two, and three, are like the finger trap thing move you got to do is a counterintuitive uh, move. Step one is not telling us anything. It's not telling us what to do. It's super interesting. Um, it's only reporting what others have done and have surprisingly found to be helpful. Um, there's not a hint of moralism. There's no shaming. There's no shooting. I learned that uh, word S-H-O-U-L-D-I-N-G from Deborah Dean Ware, my pastor friend. Um, the descriptive term of the people who are struggling uh, is powerless, not immoral or corrupt or perverse or bad or stupid. And even then it's limited powerlessness. It's not powerless over everything, but powerless over this one thing, in this case for AA, alcohol. And then the result of this powerlessness is that our lives have become 
unmanageable, you know, not objectionable, not reprehensible, just unmanageable, unworkable. There's no blame in that. It, it just is what it is. Uh, if you notice the verb, I've been very careful about the language of this 12 steps. The verb, the action word, the thing they did as the first step was they admitted. You know, to admit something is just to kind of, it's a little bit passive. It's like you, you let it happen. I, I was hosting this philistical event at my home. Um, I announced it several times. I was inviting people. I, I was exerting energy to get as many people as possible there because I'm a philistical enthusiast. And I was kind of stressing and worried. I was hoping people would show up. John Sweeney was driving in from Milwaukee. I didn't want to have like seven people in the room. So putting all this energy into it. And then, you know, we had it all set up. Got it the wine and the LaCroix and all that stuff set and had a little bite to eat myself with Julia, and uh, the doorbell rang. It was 10 to 7. The guests were starting to arrive. I went to the door, and what did I do? I just let them come in. That's what admitting something is. It's just like you, you, let, them, you let them come in. It's, it's not all that hard. Um, uh, to admit something is not even to strain to see something that's hard to see. So the, the only thing you can possibly admit is things that you like actually are aware of. It's just, it's just a, kind of like a law of nature. Um, the word for admit um, in the sense of confess in the New Testament is a, is a lovely word. It's a Greek word and it's alelo. Alelo. I just wish every now we were, again, we were a Pentecostal church, I could say, turn to your neighbor and say, Alelo, and everyone would do it. That'd be so cool, but it's not going to happen. Alelo. 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 Thank you, Sharonda. That was awesome. It's going to spread, I believe. Um, it's a playful sounding word, Alelo. Um, it means to say the same thing as. Even that's kind of playful, to say the same thing as. Um, I was doing some wedding prep recently, a couple couples in here I've been doing some wedding prep for, and uh, last week I was with this couple or wedding prep, and um, I, I should mention, it's uh, Lyle and Melissa. This is actually, kind of kind of nervous about, this is my first straight wedding in Blue Ocean, <laughs> and I hope you all are ready for this, as I, I did the study. I did the study and everything, and I, you know, we had, had meetings, and I worked it out, and I just feel like, Lord, it's time. It's time for me to take the step and marry a straight couple. I hope you're all going to be fine with that. I hope you're not going to stop giving money. I hope there's not going to be a big thing happening. Just, you know, everybody chill. It'll be okay. Lyle and Melissa are getting, they love each other. If you knew them, if you just knew them personally, you, you would find, feel fine about it. So, I'm, I'm asking Lyle and Melissa about the vows. And it's like the, the question uh, about the vows is, do you want to write your own vows, memorize them, and say them to each other? Or do you just want to, you know, I'll say the vows and repeat after me. And they're like, oh yeah, I'll, you say the vows and we'll repeat after you. That's alelo. Just say the same thing as. And it's, it's easy. So what's our resistance to this? It's fear, of course. You know, it's fear that if we admit the thing that's staring us in the face, it will be more real. 
right? When you know, when you name things, they are more real. It's a central human thing to name things, but you have to remind yourself it's real already. Um, and the thing about, and you you know this from your own experience, admitting things like this often comes with a great sense of release and relief. You know, I uh, speaking about Lyle and Melissa, I spent several years, um, you know, trying to make space in my evangelical brain and the evangelical church and the evangelical denomination I was part of, this new, fully inclusive approach to LGBTQ. I wanted it so bad. I was working so hard at it. And I, I, there were early hopeful signs, you know, reassurance from the national director that this is going to be fine in 2012. I uh, thought I saw, oh, a discernible, possible theological path forward that's consistent with the values. I think this, I think we might be able to pull this off. And then in, I guess it was probably 2013, if I'm honest, that it became clear. At this point in history, you can't be inside the evangelical circle and not play by the evangelical gay rules. You may want to, you may think it ought to be possible, but it's not. If you ride the evangelical church bus, it's a bus your gay friends can only sit in the back of. That is just the, the, the reality. And that reality, that was so hard for me to admit. Like it took me about a year to admit in terms of like, okay, I'm just going to stop trying. And once I did, there was like, a surprising sense of relief. Like I, I didn't realize how much I had put myself in, in a kind of a pressured position on this thing. And when I made the admission, it's not possible at this time in history, the pressure just, it just evaporated. Um, and then acknowledging reality is like an important step in connecting with any God who's real. So step one. Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Again, just note the lack of moralism in this step. Restore us to sanity. Um, sanity is not a moral condition. <laughs> the Latin word um, that's the root is uh, sanitas. It means health. Uh, modern connotation is like mental health. But it's mental health of a particular kind. So you can be super anxious and be sane. You can be deeply depressed and be sane. But insane, that's more like symptoms that seriously detach you from reality and make it very difficult for you to engage reality. You're hearing voices that you don't realize are just voices in your head, but they, they're like real commanding voices. So there's no moral virtue in being sane, and there's no moral vice in missing a few cards in the sanity department. Came to believe, I like this, every word is carefully chosen, came to believe, meaning a process that took some time. I came to believe. Time unspecified, an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, several decades, you know, you, you take the steps at your own pace. That's the only way to take steps. Came to believe. Um, believe what? Th this and only this. That a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's a very limited 
step of faith as I read it. Strictly speaking, I don't think it even means that we know for sure that such a power exists, that a power greater than ourselves could restore us. I came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could conceivably restore us to sanity. Um, that's a very limited step, step two. Um, back to the first word of the 12 steps, we. No singular pronouns in all the 12 steps. It's we, our, ourselves. So in this came, case, we came to believe, which I think is kind of philosophically important or telling. Um, the older I get, I think the more, um, I think the more I believe we can only believe things in the company of others who also believe them. And I didn't want to believe that when I was 18, you know. I wanted to believe that I would come up with my own beliefs, you know, and that it's like the romantic ideal of the individual. And, you know, I will decide what I believe. But in actual fact, the way things like faith work are not like that. It's like you, we can only believe what we believe in the company of others who also believe those things. Um, if you're around people who believe you're bad, then contrary to evidence, you will start believing you're bad. It's just how it works. We're, we're, we're mirroring beings. Um, you will come to believe otherwise when you're around some other people who believe otherwise. Uh, faith in that sense is like, like language. Um, it can only be known with others. Yes, you can make up your own language theoretically, but you can't use it unless other people know the same language. So it's a communal thing, believing in, a, in an odd way. And the, you know, a tricky thing about this is a lot of us have a storyline where we grew up and then you know, in our whatever, teen years or 20s, we ask, well, why do I believe that this? You, know, when you go to college and you comparative religions, well, why do I believe the way I do? And you're like, well, I have to admit, I believe the way I do because I grew up believing this stuff. And then you go on a quest you know, to find out what you believe, distinct from what other people told you to believe. But the only way you can actually go on that quest is to consider what other people believe and read what other people believe or be exposed to what other people believe. It's just like irreducibly a communal experience believing. Step three, made a decision to turn our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I think we need to cut the 12 steps a little slack here. Um, we need to forgive the unnecessary use of the masculine pronoun, <laughs> him, <laughs> to refer to God. Um, it's especially ironic in this use. You know, it was written in the 1930s by a man. AA itself would say, nobody has to understand God as a hymn. <laughs> I think it's time for a rewrite of this step, but I don't think I even get a vote on that. Made a decision to turn our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. So not an altar call. Step three is not an altar call. This is not the AA preacher saying, give your lives to God, now's the time. No one in this step is telling anyone what to do, right? Just, we made a decision to turn our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. So it's a report of what people did who found help and were a bit surprised by what they discovered. 
Um, so AA is a one-step-at-a-time spirituality, and it's a no-pressured, each person is always in charge of deciding what they will do for themselves, spirituality. Um, and for most people today, I think that's actually the only approach to spirituality that works. I mean, if ever the other approach to spirituality worked, it, it just doesn't work anymore for most people. Some say this is like a critique of uh, AA spirituality is, it's spirituality light. This, 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 this step especially would be regarded as spirituality light. Came to believe in, in, you know, in, in a God as we understood God. Like, oh please, you know, like commit yourself to something. Like there should be some substance to what you believe. That's like namby-pamby. That's like some kind of generic kind of spirituality. I don't think it's spirituality like. I think it's spirituality real. Like we can intellectually define God in very elaborate, systematic kind of ways. But I think when push comes to shove, we actually only engage God. And this is what this step is about, engaging God, turning our lives over to God as a form of engagement. As we subjectively understand or picture God, right? So it really doesn't matter what, in a sense, you believe or what you think or what your creedal statements are. What really matters when it comes to engaging God at a personal level is your subjective internal understanding of who God is. And that's not just what you think about God, that's what you feel about God. And there might be quite a difference between like your creedal statements about God, as developed as they are, as correct as they are, and then what your actual understanding of God is. Sue Brokaw is uh, getting trained as a spiritual director. And one of the things that spiritual directors are trained to do is to help people distinguish between like their belief systems about God, but their actual personal understanding or vision of who God is, and that's it takes it takes some conversation to get to, to get to the bottom of that. It takes some self-reflection to get to the bottom of that, and that's what really matters. And I don't think it's spirituality light because it's a super big move. Like, it's give your lives over to the care of God. It's big. It's significant, but it's not labored. It's not labored. Um, James Allison is my latest favorite theologian, replacing N.T. Wright. Uh, Emily and I, not to drop names, had a Eucharist with James Allen a while back. So, shook the hand that shook the hand. Um, James Allison is the first, he's a, he's a Catholic priest who's a gay man, and he hasn't been defrocked. And maybe we shouldn't put this online, but no, he's openly a gay priest. And, and for some reason, he hasn't been defrocked. And he's quite a <clears throat> theological force, growing one, I'd say. Um, and he talks about, he uses this phrase, he's got a lot of phrases like this. One is undergoing God, is that we, we undergo God. <laughs> like God happens to us. I, I like that. And then he thinks of faith, especially the um, trusting faith, as relaxing into God. Like that's what faith really is in terms of the internal, what's it like? Faith is like relaxing into God. In God we live and move and have our being. Um, it says in, in Acts, I think it is. And you relax into that 
understanding and that's a step of trusting faith um, so it's like a fussy child relaxes in its mother's arms it's relaxing into God or um, like a dog gets your dog gets all excited when you come home and it's excited for half hour or maybe 45 minutes depending on how long it's been away and then you know you sit down and you relax and you have a glass of wine or whatever and what does your dog do your dog falls asleep at your feet you know that's relaxing into God um, this falling asleep is probably not a bad metaphor either um, because unless we fall asleep because of sheer exhaustion we do have to believe every time we fall asleep that the universe is going to be safe enough for us in our particular corner of it that it's okay we can fall asleep you know we can check out of consciousness for as long as eight or nine hours and no one's in particular is like watching over us necessarily and we're chances are we're going to wake up you have to have that belief in order to intentionally fall asleep and then when you think about what's it like in your normal falling asleep at bedtime at night you know you've got your little routine and you're in bed and you're reading a little bit of a book I, I got the latest Obama biography book and, and it's that thick it's that thick and I, I was ready to read it in bed and I'm opening it up and it, I said this dang book is too big to read it's like a bank that's too big to fail it's a book that's too big to read I was thinking about splitting it down the half and duct taping it and this is ridiculous I can't read this biography I'm telling you this it has nothing to do with the point I'm making I'm just thinking about going to sleep and you're reading or you're doing whatever you're watching a little TV and then what do you do you have to decide oh it's time to go to sleep now and you turn off the light you set the alarm clock, you turn up, you make a decision to go to sleep. Does that necessarily mean that you're going to go to sleep? No. But it's usually essential to go to sleep. It's just make the decision, now's the time to go to sleep. That's what this step is, is uh, all about. Made a decision to turn our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Okay, quiet reflection time. Um, for the quiet reflection, I'm trying to, um, we take a one to three minutes at the end of each sermon to do a little time of quiet reflection. I see everyone's getting relaxed. That's cool. Um, and I thought for this series, we ought to just try to um, use one of the AA slogans for our quiet reflection. What did we use last time? Um, hmm? Easy does it, yeah. And so I'm like, what's the, what's the AA slogan for the first three steps. And I think it's let go and let God. Let go, let God. Let go and let God is not a um, slogan for every situation. If you're driving your car, and even if in the, your bumper sticker you say, God is my co-pilot, don't forget you are the pilot. Drive the dang car. If you drive into a ditch and you're upside down and you're stuck and you can't get out, then let go. Let God. If someone cuts you off and is an idiot, then just inside the car, let go and let God, but keep your hands on the wheel. So let go and let God is not for every situation, but because of our sense of control being so exaggerated, um, we miss many opportunities 
to use the slogan, let go and let God. Um, so communion actually is a weekly reminder uh, to keep this slogan in mind. So um, God as I understand God um, was mysteriously revealed in a Jewish rabbi the first century who became more famous after his death than he was before it, which is not that easy. His, and I think his manner of dying revealed some real um, mysterious and deep things about humanity. That when, when we picture this rabbi in his dying, what we're picturing is something about our essential humanity. Um, he was powerless when he died, you know, to use that word. I mean, he literally had no power over anything except his breathing. And then his breathing started. He stopped being able to breathe. He was unable to do anything for himself. He was mortal. It was clear he was mortal when he was dying. He was probably naked or nearly naked. And that's in a shame-based culture over nakedness. And so he was super vulnerable, socially vulnerable. Um, he was in a position of shame. So it's kind of like all the internal things that we're experiencing when there's something we just can't beat in our lives. That's, that's a picture of it. And add to that, he was a, you know, a religious man and he was disappointed with God. He was seriously disappointed with God at that, at that point. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, you know, he's talking to God. He, he thinks God exists, but he's saying, why aren't you helping me? He was disappointed with God. So I think this picture is a super... Uh, spot-on picture for us um, and then I think it's I think it's in John's gospel he made like a final move and I think it was like essentially his last move so it's just if he's a model for us it's his last modeling move into your hands I commit my spirit I think this is what um, pious Jews say before they go to sleep at night into your hands I commit my spirit I know it's in the divine hours and the compline prayers. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Spirit there in the Jewish understanding is, is more concrete. It's like our breath, our physicality, our, you know, we get that first, first breath from Yahweh and that made us a nefesh, a soul, a living spirit. And so he gave up his spirit. He couldn't, he literally couldn't keep breathing. That's what happens when you're being crucified. You get asphyxiated. And soon you realize I can't breathe much more. And so it's very telling. He said, into your hands I commit like my breathing, <laughs> my spirit, is let go and let God. So um, for the first minute, we'll take maybe 30 seconds actually, and just identify, close your eyes, relax, and just spend a little time thinking and try to just identify and name a situation or aspect of your life in which you think this slogan would really fit because you can't control it. Okay, now that you've identified that thing, um, just for the next 90 seconds, 
let go, let God, return your focus to that phrase. I'll just say it aloud every 30 seconds so you know how the time is going. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Amen.